Before I introduce today's guest, a quick reminder that we love hearing from you about how these conversations inform, inspire or help you make sense of yourself or the world around you. So at the end of this show, we'd really love you to hit subscribe and give us a quick review and some gold stars maybe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. That way we can keep producing these shows based on what you're into and keep bringing you more humans with stories that we think should be told in times like these. Thanks for your support. We've been blown away and you rock. Now, on to today's episode, my guest today is Nicole Dyson, an award-winning entrepreneur and educator, a voracious reader. She reads about 50 books a year. And she's also the trailblazing founder of Future Anything, which has worked with thousands of students and educators across Australia and beyond, delivering best practice project-based learning to unleash the potential of every young person. Nicole is super experienced in education. She has been a teacher in the USA, the UK and Australia, as well as the head of department and the head of the year at some of Queensland's top performing public schools. She has repeatedly led the design and implementation of wholesale education changes to support future-ready learning, placing young people at the forefront of co-designing learning experiences, which is exactly where they should be. But in this conversation, Nicole and I chat about her thoughts on some of the challenges that we're seeing in today's education system which can sometimes default to a chalk-and-talk, teacher-the-test kind of model, which really doesn't keep up with the real world, advancements in technology, and still fails to provide equity of access for all students. On top of that, Nicole believes we have a generation of young people being brought up in a soup of uncertainty, given where the world's at, with scant opportunity to play and experiment and learn that failure is how we do learn, and who in many instances are being raised by stressed-out, low-capacity parents who really don't know how to support their kids' learning. This is an interesting conversation about how we can rethink education to meet the needs both of students and the world around them. Here's my chat with Nicole. Why did you go into teaching in the first place? Uh, do you know what? I, I thought I wanted to be a vet as a kid. I, um, I wanted to save the animals, but I didn't get the OP1, which was the score you needed at the time to get straight into vet. So I started a science degree and I didn't love that. Um, and then I tried applied science, which for the record is pretty much the same as science. So I didn't love that either. Just applied. Yep. Yeah, yeah, not that different for, for any budding young people out there that are looking at their options for university. Um, so I went overseas, but I, I was a swimmer as a kid. And so when I went overseas, uh, instead of working in bars, I actually coached swimming and I was working with young people in America at summer camps and also coaching a master's team, um, in the UK. And it was that experience of working with young people in that coaching role that made me wonder whether perhaps teaching might be something I might like to do. So I kind of just came back and gave the degree a go, um, and I, and to be honest, as I was studying it, I wasn't even sure if it was for me, but when I would go out on prac and I was in the classroom working with young people, there was something really special about the relationships you could build. And um, I've always been really excited about seeing people do something that they didn't think they could do. And um, teaching provide that vehicle to kind of unlock, I think, those capabilities in young people, especially to kind of shatter their own perceptions of who they are and get them to think about maybe who they could be Mm -hmm. um, if if they just have a little bit of space and support. Mm -hmm. And and with the current education system so I know that you've 
done a lot of work with thousands of students across Australia in your um, business, Future Anything, and in makes to teach them skills in entrepreneurship and really think um, differently around how we equip them with with um, not just knowledge but skills and experiences. And you've been you've said knowledge is not power; skills and experiences are. What do you mean by that? Look, I think I remember sitting in in my year 10 classroom and my maths teacher saying to me, like, Nicole, you really need to pay attention to this. It's not like you're going to have your calculator in a pocket, you know, everywhere you go. Um, but the irony of that statement is like, we do. Like we carry around a calculator and a thesaurus and an encyclopedia and any potential other piece of content that we need is like, you know, milliseconds away from our, our understanding. So I just think that, you know, perhaps we're under, like remembering fact because we didn't have that at our fingertips where that skill may have been important in the past. The reality is there's never going to be a time or place where young people now are not going to have content and knowledge in front of them, but it's what they do with that content or knowledge or how they apply it or their critical understanding of which pieces of content and knowledge they should be engaging with. Um, I think that's more powerful moving forward. It's the application of knowledge um, that's far more useful moving forward than than remembering knowledge is ever going to be. What do you think the fundamental role of education is in our changing world? For young people to understand themselves, like I think that's the cornerstone role of education is for young people to know a little bit more about who they are. And then secondly, for young people to see the opportunity that exists for them in the real world. So to unlock or showcase the potential that might exist for that young person in the real world because I think we all once we work out what we want to do there is no barrier big enough to stop us from achieving those goals when we're committed but it's when we feel a complete lack of engagement in our future or we feel really um, like we can't see where we're going like that that lethargy creates like that treading water feeling and if we're treading water we're exhausted and we're tired so I do think education is about understanding self and then understanding movement but uh, like I think the narrative around like what are you going to be when you grow up like that's a that's a dead conversation. Given you are trained in teaching and you deeply understand curriculum and teaching and learning design and the pedagogical side of education if you had an open book how would you redesign the education system to meet the real world? I think the first cornerstone is is like co-design with young people in the room like I think we don't provide enough opportunities for young people to be involved in co-constructing the learning opportunities that they're tapping into so I would say that's the first thing Um, the second thing that I would say is if we don't have a real world context the curriculum doesn't have a purpose so if you can't align um, the achievement standard or the learning to something that exists in the real world, why are you even teaching it in the first place? So I think it's that real world context that's the second element. Um, the next thing that I would say is it's then connecting that curriculum to authentic voices in the real world who are working within the industries that that, that curriculum aligns with. Um, we all do what we do because at some point we met somebody that kind of um, shaped who we are or who we could be. So I, I do think we have a responsibility as educators to provide opportunities for young people to tap into diverse voices so that they can sort of see what's out there in the world and who they could be. So co-construction with young people, um, real world context, and then authentic voices in the real world. I think they're sort of the cornerstone elements of of great curriculum. Mm -hmm. And 
I agree. The real world is so fundamental to creating that um, bridging education with industry 4.0 or 5.0. So we really have got um, kids connected with what's going on in the real world. Um, But what we know is one of the issues with education is it's a bit siloed. And if you can't get outside the four classroom walls and get the, the interface with the real world, well, then how do you do real world learning? So how do we solve for that? Um, look, when I, when we work with teaching teams, you know, nationally and internationally, the, the first question that we often ask is who's within your school community, your local community and your wider community that you could actually engage um, to support your learners? And often you're just one ask away from changing the lens that, or the, authentic, the authentic, authentic lens that that curriculum is being operated in. So I do think we need to almost give permission to educators, educators, teaching teams and leaders to actually invite the real world to be part of that learning experience as well. So I think that's a, a cornerstone part is um, anybody who, who I've ever asked to be involved in our programs, like they often say, oh, I wish this existed when I was in school. And they jump at the opportunity to be involved in reshaping learning um, today because they know how important it is that it needs to be real world. We hear a lot about sort of differentiated learning and that um, we've gone from this mass or industrialised education system, which which by and large the system is still designed on an industrial model, which is a one-to-many kind of model. Um, how do we truly think about bringing um, that differentiated learning into a classroom to meet all those different needs, neurodiversity and, and active and all the different learning styles, um, when we have got a mass system and there's almost efficiencies in that system, which is one teacher to blah ratio. What are your thoughts about how we actually think about system redesign in education? Yeah, look, I think it's really complex because you can have an innovative classroom teacher who's developing incredible curriculum within a school and they're still constrained by what the system demands of them um, externally. So, um, it, look, it's a really complex space. I'm a, I'm a massive believer in project-based learning and inquiry-based learning as a pedagogy. And I think that that can provide like a really amazing vehicle for equity in education and also that real world context that I think is really critical for engagement for young people. And for our listeners, if, can you just explain what project-based or inquiry-based learning is? Yeah. So, I mean, if I think about, it's really just taking a a problem um, or using curriculum as a catalyst for young people to explore a problem and then they produce a piece of work that responds to that curriculum catalyst and the problem that they've explored. Um, So, you know, one of our Future Anything programs is a science unit where young people look at tectonic plates um, and then from engaging with that piece of curriculum, they then look at how could we design a device that might reduce the impact of a natural disaster. So you engage with the curriculum, but then the task itself is is kind of a project in response to the curriculum as a catalyst. Um, I think that it's got an it's an amazing vehicle for creating authentic and engaging learning experiences. Um, but the adoption of it within our current system is posing problems. I think from a systems point of view because the size and scope of these projects can be so large that if you've got a 13-year-old who's doing eight subjects and each of those eight subjects are doing a large-scale project and they're all issued in week six and due in week eight, how is it possible for that young person to bring their personal excellence um, to that space under those constraints that the system has placed? So, Sometimes it's not just about the curriculum in the classroom in isolation, as you flagged, but we need to look at what's the whole school approach to what I'm calling like time load of a task. Like if we're creating a task, rather than thinking of the workload, what's the time load? How how long, relatively speaking, would the average student take to complete that task? 
And then how are we actually tetrising that in with all of the other requirements that that young person has across their timetable as well? Um, it's, it's a really complex space, but it does require a, a complete redesign around um, how we assess, when we assess and why we assess. In some of the work we've done with, with, with schools and certainly our um, insight and discovery phase of understanding what schools need, one of the things that comes up a lot is that the school says, look, we can only do so much that actually parents uh, or carers or, or guardians uh, and that sort of family culture or community culture have a really indelible effect on a young person and it's really quite hard to shift some of those dictates. Um, so, yeah, what role do you think um, parents can play in supporting the education of their young person? Oh, look, um, you know, we're talking about a generation of young people that have probably the most stressed parents of, of any generation at the same time. We're talking about economic pressures that require, you know, dual dual incomes where parents are away at work and aren't necessarily at home and you know parents are coming home fried and shattered um, and their young people are coming home exhausted at the same time from school so I think there are lots of complexities that are sitting with us from a societal point of view that make that um, support element really challenging for the modern family um, and not even talking about split family homes or, or any other complexities that sit on that as well even if you're talking about a two parents, two kids and, and the white picket fence, that's it's still, it's not what it was. So I, I don't know. I think as far as like parent engagement when it comes in supporting young people starts with conversations at the dinner table. Um, you know, what did you learn today? Um, did you find it interesting? Did you not? Uh, where do you think you could use that in the future? Um, how did it make you feel? Um, actually just kind of providing the space to interrogate the learning and help young people to step through that reflection process about what it might mean for them. Because if young people can start to contextualise those learning experiences, they can start to identify where that might take them in the future. So did I love that and therefore do I want to seek out more of that or did I not enjoy that, in which case how do I steer away from those things that I don't genuinely love? Um, or did I not enjoy it because I wasn't very good at it, in which case is there somewhere I can go in order to build my capacity in that space so that I'm more comfortable the next time I tap into that? But I think parents provide like a really safe space um, in order to almost uh, translate with the learning um, and then create meaning for the young person. Speaking of dinner tables and picket fences, um, let's go back to your dinner dinner table. You grew up, uh, you're the oldest of five kids, so from a pretty big yep. family in Brisbane. Yep. In Brisbane, yep. So how did your upbringing influence who you are today? Oh, look, um, yeah, a lot. I, yeah, eldest of five, my... My parents, my mum particularly, was super strict on me. So I, I was certainly like towed the line when it came to boundaries as a young person. You're the oldest child. That's that's the role you play, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. As opposed to, to my younger sibling, there's 11 years difference and I don't think he knows what rules look like. There weren't any, certainly by the time he rolled around. So, yeah, I, I do think that uh, the values that my parents placed quite early on for me were definitely around hard work, hard work. Um, and persistence, um, and that hard work and persistence will pay off. Um, and my my mum particularly set the bar really high from a perform performance point of view um, around academics. And then also I was a swimmer growing up as well. And, and there was certainly a level of expectation um, growing up around performance in that space. So I think that really shaped 
potentially, I guess, that drive and determination that I have now and the juggle between um, swimming and school was something that I learned a lot from, you know, getting up at four in the morning and being in the water by five and going from the pool to school and then from school back to the pool. And um, still now my favourite place to be is is in the water, like, you know, following a black line. I find that it's, it's almost meditation to me to sort of do laps and, and have that quiet space. So, that was definitely foundational, but my parents also separated when I was a teenager and, and I think that really played a role in, you know, adult me navigating what relationships look like and and um, and all of the things that those kinds of um, relationship breakdowns can can sort of catalyse, I guess, in you growing up and, and what that means as well. Oh, classic. Oh, I love it. Bit of AFL. Um, yeah. So hard work and persistence, I certainly have seen that in you, those those traits are really strong, and and you and I have both had many conversations, obviously, about startups and how much it takes to run your own business. Um, that you're the work's not getting done unless you're doing it, and you're the one getting up and really driving yourself. There's no days where you can sleep under the desk when you're running your own business. Mm. Um, <laughs> you've obviously tried lots of things in in make and future any, anything, and um, and you probably failed lots too, like the best of us. How has one of the failures that you've, or so-called challenges, how has it set you up for success, one of the things that you've tried uh, that hasn't worked? Oh, I, look, I I've often have this conversation even about career pathways, like um, in the sense that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, do you wish you started your business earlier? Like, you know, you're a little bit like later to sort of come to starting your business. Do you wish you started it earlier? But the reality is I couldn't have started Future Anything if I wasn't a teacher and I couldn't have been a teacher if I didn't sort of do swimming coaching overseas and I, I couldn't have done swimming coaching overseas if I hadn't been a swimmer growing up and, and that couldn't have happened if my dad couldn't swim and he really wanted me to learn to swim. So it's like this collision of um, decisions that kind of create like the present moment and I certainly think that all of those failures along the way have been that. So what the first business that, we tr- that I tried to launch was with um, my best friend at the time um, and somebody who, who I had also been in a relationship with for, for three years before that as well. So we were three years in a relationship and then two years deep in just being very good friends and formulated an idea over dumplings, as you do, um, to develop like an online tutoring platform that would be a social enterprise. So we would um, have tutors like obviously online and, and we would take a cut of each tutoring um that would take place online and then obviously feed that back to provide tutoring to young people who couldn't afford it. Um, and we ran a crowdfunding campaign and, and generated some money and, and went to our um, digital developers in order to get the platform built. And they got probably 20% into the build um, and the money ran out. And they said, sorry, guys, that's all we got done. So you've got to get some more money or, or like this is all you've got. <laughs> um, and it was a, a really acute realisation for me in the fact that um, – what you don't know can hurt you, I think, as well. And and also trying to be really discerning about the organisations and the relationships that you build to make sure that, again, just lessons around like scoping a project before you like sign over cash and like how to how to monitor a project as it's being rolled out to make sure that things are being delivered at the markers that they're supposed to and even vet checking the, the, the organisation before they start to build to make sure that the capacity is there for them to deliver what they said they would. Um, there was a, a host of, of sort of learning experiences, I think, through that. Um, and then in the end, like, you know, with the digital revolution and with Zoom, like I don't know that it would have been the most viable business to launch in the first place but that notion of I guess unlocking 
um, capability for young people has always been something that's fed through each of the ideas regardless of, of what the concepts look like. Mm. And in those moments where you had challenges like that, I won't call it failure, um, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed or unsure or scooped out? What are some of the tools that you use to self-repair? Oh, and do you know what? Like I think um, we talk to our young people a lot about like feedback fitness or failure fitness. Like you actually do build a level of resilience every time you have that experience. They're not fun. Like you definitely have a moment of, of um, for me, sitting on the floor of the shower, <laughs> just trying to um, regather some thinking. So, yeah, definitely. And, and look, my partner knows if it's been a day because, yeah, I will be, I'll, the shower will be running for a while and then, you know, I'll be sitting on the floor having a ponder. Oh, I'm a bath person. I spent hours in the bath to recover and it's just like a womb. It's like going into a humidity crib or something and then I'm all better if I can just be in there for a couple of hours on my own. <laughs> so I get it. Yeah. It's water I, therapy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think for me, like that water and that quiet space to kind of contemplate, I'm a big, um, I draw a lot. Like I've always got my notebook with me and, and I always like to sketch out thinking. So I think sometimes it's about getting out what happened and like writing about it, whether it's like something for me or whether it's like sketching out what happened to kind of understand what I can learn from it. Um, and then I think what I've tried to be throughout all of those challenges or failures is like hungry for feedback. Um, so how can I learn as much as I can from that experience so I don't replicate the same mistake again? Um, so I guess when you're an entrepreneur and, and your, your business is your baby a lot of the time, um, it's also learning to kind of park your ego and separate yourself from the feedback and understand that the, that that's about the business. It's not about you. And so learning to kind of separate those two things, which is really hard. It can be. You're right. If you're very personally attached to that thing, you're delivering the values implicit in your part in that. But then like any good entrepreneur, uh, you know, iteration is fundamental to that. Absolutely. Like I think the first curriculum program that we ran out for Future Anything was um, was nothing on what the program is now. And it's only gotten that way because educators and young people have been generous with their feedback about the program and have almost graced us with their thinking um, around what they loved and also the things that they wished were different. And I, I do, I feel honoured when when people carve out time in order to provide that feedback because it helps us get better. Mm. And, and feedback and that's right, taking in those learnings and those insights and um, it helps you. What about the role of self-education for you apart from feedback um, from external people? Let's think about what, if you think about, um, you know, over recent times, which book or idea has most influenced you? Oh, I am, um, I try and read 50 books a year. Like I set myself that target to read a book. And I, again, like sitting on the floor of the shower reading is something that I find I can escape into and learn from. I'm not a Kindle user, but I feel like if I could get like a waterproof Kindle, then I could do both at the same time. And maybe that would be the sweetest spot, but I'll get some students to work on that one for you. Yeah, that's, you're right. I should set that as a task. So you read 50 books a year, which is a huge, it's mega. Um, are you, what are the sorts of genres you're into? I love like business books. I love um, The Alchemist, I think is always, is a book that I pick up if I'm feeling a bit lost sometimes um, and a reread of that kind of frames things for me. I remember reading Paul Jarvis's Company of One and that really um, challenged this like uh, startup mantra around scale. Like I found myself really going, 
insular around like what are we growing for and why are we going growing and do we need to grow and is it because I think that success is attached to scale or is it because I think that scale is like best for what we're creating and what we're doing so I remember having a lot of my fundamental values as an entrepreneur, really challenged by that that book as well. Yeah, there is a lot of pressure uh, for founders, isn't there, in certain you know startups that, that it's growth at all cost, and there's a big you know bro culture around that, and 10x, and you know, and, and, and especially if there's investment brought into a company, well then that um, that really compounds that that pressure cooker really on the founder to to, to grow. Um, yeah, at, at sort of how big do you want? How will you know that your work is having enough impact in what you're doing with Future Anything? How big can you get? Uh, and 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 what will be satisfactory for you? Do you know what I um I was thinking about this in the last couple of weeks, just trying to like unpack like where are we now and where are we going and and what is the line? And I think if somebody had have asked me, you know, two years ago whether I'd be standing here now, like I would have, I just wouldn't have believed it. You know, we started with like a hundred kids in a school, and then it was like three hundred, and then it was five hundred, and then suddenly we're working with like in Activate, you know, four and a half thousand students and like 150 teachers. And it just seems a little bit beyond that that could even happen in such a short period of time. Um, So I think maybe the answer to that question is the best way to be is happy where you're at. And that's a hard lesson to learn as an entrepreneur, I think. But maybe what I'm trying to teach myself is that what we're doing, if we're doing really good work now, then where we are right now is a really good place to be. And as long as we continue to talk to our teachers and students about where they're at and what they need, um, then hopefully we continue to get better for them rather than, you know, for our ego or for growth or scale or some other, um, I don't know, something else that sits on the outside that really doesn't matter. And having just said, be happy where you're at, what's next for you? <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> um, yeah, so we've, uh, I think we're, like, it's so funny and I think you probably feel the same way too when you work in, like, an education sector. You get to halfway through the year and all of a sudden you've got to switch into thinking about next year. Like, you only get six months to, like, live in a year before you're already sort of stepping into the next year. So, um, for us, we're looking at sort of 2022 and what our curriculum offerings look like there for Activate. Um, and We've got a few new positions that will be coming up for staff, like just to sort of build capacity um, around Australia with with how we're delivering programs, and um, and just yeah, looking for for us like we built catapult cards at the beginning of this year, which was like a design thinking tool for teachers to use um, in the classroom. And what I'm super excited about is that 50% of the profits from those kits are going into a fund for young people to access to get microfinance for their business ideas. So um, I think what I'm most excited about now is having this like bucket of money to kind of just hand out to young people to kind of see what they can do with a little bit of cash. Hmm. And can you give me an example or our listeners an example, not just me, um, of a young person or a group of young people who have taken an idea and used design thinking, you know, to solve a problem and then build something cool? Yeah, I mean, look, even just our last three, like, grand final winners have all been sort of outstanding young people. But if I focus on some of our young people that pitched last year, um, our winner was three boys from the Sunshine Coast that identified that um, obviously there were lots of wildlife were getting killed through shark nets um, off the coast. So they used... um, and don't like quiz me on the science because, as we know, I, I didn't finish the it's science okay. or the applied science degree. <laughs> I'm not so. an educator, and science ain't my strong suit. So you're safe with me. 
Yeah, great. So, um, they, like using the science behind elect, elect, electromagnetic waves in order to create these like buoys that sit off the coast that kind of repel sharks from coming into the beach. What's kind of cool about these boys is like, I don't know that that was their idea, but they've gone on to engage in a bunch of other entrepreneurial programs over the course of the next six months. And they're kind of honing and refining um, that entrepreneurial capacity. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, sometimes like our programs are just kind of catalysts for young people seeing the potential in that pathway. And then they continue to kind of refine that journey as they move through. So it might not be the idea they conceived in our program, but it might be an idea five years later or 10 years later that, that they really latch on to. Um, but we also had Andy from the Gap State High School in Brisbane and his, I mean, his Instagram handle is fun puns by Andy. And you, you need to follow this kid. He just draws these hilarious illustrated puns and he slaps them on t-shirts and you can go to his website and you can buy them. And I, you're not supposed to have favourite kids, but there's something just joyful um, in Andy and what he does. Um, it's it's a joyful simplicity in his concept that I find um, really fantastic. So awesome! And we'll, then, we'll put a link to that. Yeah, fun, fun puns yeah. by Andy. Okay, fun puns by Andy. Yeah, and just I don't know, like I think adults overthink entrepreneurship, whereas kids just kind of and young people just kind of make stuff happen. So um, Michaela runs this organization out of um, Springfield and um, she just wanted to put something out into the world that made people feel better about themselves. So she has these keychains that have got affirmations on them, like I am enough and I am kind and I am loved. Um, and her project is called the I am project. Um, and you can just pick up her keychains and kind of have them around you every day to remind you that you matter. So such a simple idea, but, you know, I think having that in people's pockets every day can make a real difference. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And and you're right, kids don't have some of those barriers or inhibitors or imposters, you know, and the over-engineering of thought that goes into um, into business uh, that, that a lot of adults do. We overcomplicate everything. Um, and I think is it, uh, I think Paul Graham from Y Combinator, one of the biggest accelerators in the world for startups based in the US, um, their phrase is make something people want. It's as simple as that. Make something people want. Solve a problem in a way that the solution is built such that you are actually meeting a human need. Like it's super simple, but so many of us don't do that. There are so many widgets out in the world and there is um, so many things that are that are actually not serving anyone's needs. So we need to get more kids inside businesses to actually build the things that the world needs and solve the problems like climate change or, or poverty and some of the issues we have because they're thinking about it in a way that's unconstrained by all the layering of thought that previous generations have yeah absolutely and I think you know our odyssey that we work with is young people we say that the best ideas are developed by young people that can catalyze their lived experiences with something that they care about so you know actually just realizing that it's the genius the unique genius that sits inside all of us that is actually the secret source to the best ideas and when you show up as yourself um, to an idea that's when something special is created yeah for sure and there's a lot of theory um, about play and experimentation being so fundamental to that process of uh, exploration and, and innovation. What do you think the role, and, and kids naturally play um, if they're lucky to be born in a situation where they can, what do you think about the role of play in experimentation and entrepreneurship? Oh, it's crucial. Um, like I, I think that the traditional education system kills creativity in the classroom. You know, the teacher stands up in front of them and they ask a question and then young people provide the right answer in response to the teacher. And if it's not the right answer that the teacher's seeking, then you stop putting your hand up because you don't want to get it wrong. 
um, there's no experimentation there um, and there's no opportunity to play in that space. And so young people are trained that there's one question and one answer. And really the world operates in such a different way. There's like a multitude of different ways to ask a question, let alone the, the millions of different responses that can exist um, in answer to that question. So creating safe spaces um, for young people to have fun and experiment is critical to creativity because, you know, that that's that's where great ideas come from is, is play and it's thinking wild and it's it's um it's being ridiculous and and it's being innovative um and that's where it comes from it is play and fun and and not having fear sitting front and center in be, you know being willing to be yourself or try something there was a really um cool quote by um Hugh McLeod and he said everyone is born creative everyone is given a box of crayons in kindergarten and then when you hit puberty or school, they take the crayons away and replace them with dry, uninspiring books. Uh, and there, there is some truth to that, that there's a point at which if you take the crayons away, you take away the tools um, uh, or the permission, uh, it's permission to play. Yeah, and there's some really crazy statistics where like year one students, like 95% of year one students talk about how much they love school. But by the time you get to year nine, that statistic, I think, is, a, is like a 30%. Um, and so... I mean, I remember that being one of the most harrowing statistics I ever read about education, the fact that we literally bring these like enthusiastic, excited young bodies into our classrooms and then we slowly destroy them (laughs) through our education system. Well, thank goodness we've got someone like you inside education and outside education working to ignite and excite and inspire young people so that they can engage with their learning and really think about how they can place themselves into the world and solve real problems. So thank you for everything that you and your amazing team at Future Anything contribute to education um, around Australia and beyond. Nicole, we like to end all of these conversations um, with... A final question, uh, acknowledging that life can be complex and challenging and confusing. When you think about uh, about all the people that you know, who do you think is doing human really well? Look, you know, there, there are lots of people that I admire at the moment that are doing really incredible work. Um, we were talking just before about one of my favourite people, which is Lucy Thomas from Project Rocket. And I think the work that she and her sister Roe lead in that organisation, I think, is a game changer for young people and for, for the education system. So um, she's also one of the most authentic, empathetic humans I've, I've ever had the privilege of knowing. So um, I think Lucy's definitely one of those people. I think the work that Hunter Johnson's leading with the Man Cave and now with Stuff, I think, is a really important body of work for young men in, in, a, in an age where it's really hard for boys and young men to know who they are and 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 what to be in this world, and I think that that's really powerful. Um, I think again, even what we were talking about before with with Jan Owen and um, the incredible way that she's had to almost unleash the potential in in other um, incredible leaders. Like sometimes, you know, she's her body of work is is incredible in itself, but then also her ability to to almost unlock that capacity or, or capability in other people, I think, is is incredibly important as well. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. 
That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 